Hello, horror fans, and welcome to the first episode of the Abominable Dr. Welsh Horror Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Welsh, and this is the official companion podcast to the Abominable Dr. Welsh Horror Film blog. You can find the blog at abominabledrwelsh.blog. We feature regular horror film reviews, lists, polls, and more in-depth analyses of your favorite horror films, both old and new. With the podcast, I'm hoping to do weekly episodes with quick horror news roundups and a deeper focus on different subjects each and every week. On this week's episode, we're going to take a look at some natural or what critics refer to as eco-horror films. After all, it is the official first week of spring, with the ground thawing, the sun shining just a little longer, and the weather warming up a little, people are venturing outside more, so now is probably a good time to remind ourselves that nature doesn't always really like us very much. So, without further ado, let's dive into some of the horror news of the week for March 19th, 2018. So there's been a lot of exciting developments this week in the horror community. Uh, First, two weeks ago, Rob Zombie shocked horror fans with the announcement that not only was he making a sequel to The Devil's Rejects, but he'd already in fact started filming it. Zombie's Halloween reboot was a bust, and his last directorial effort, 31, was underwhelming, so it does make some sense to return to his most successful horror property to date. Fortunately, Sid Haig, Bill Mosley, and Sherry Moon Zombie will all be returning, This week, Zombie made a few more exciting casting announcements. Dee Wallace Stone will be joining the cast. Earlier today, Zombie announced that regular collaborator Jeff Daniel Phillips is also on board. And fans of John Carpenter will be excited to hear that Austin Stoker from the original Assault on Precinct 13 will also star. Netflix has more good news for killer shark film fans. The streaming platform will be adding the Rennie Harlan-directed thriller Deep Blue Sea to its roster on April 1st. Warner Brothers Studios first released Deep Blue Sea in the summer of 1999. The action thriller about genetically enhanced, super-intelligent mako sharks was a modest hit at the time, but it's built up kind of a cult following over the years. It also looks like we may be getting that Happy Death Day sequel after all. According to Production Weekly, the sequel begins filming this upcoming May in New Orleans. Happy Death Day was released last October, becoming a breakout hit for Universal Studios and Bloomhouse Productions. The Groundhog Day-inspired horror, horror film grossed approximately $55 million on a budget that flew just south of $5 million. To date, there isn't much information available about what direction the sequel may follow. Star Jessica Roth has hinted that the next installment may take some of its cues from Back to the Future. In addition, director Christopher Landon has suggested that any sequel would explore what caused Tree's time loop in the first film. Both Landon and Roth are returning as director and star respectively. And, whether we like it or not, we are going to get a remake of The Grudge from Sam Raimi's Ghost House Productions. Remember that The Grudge was a remake of a J-horror film, Juan. So far, John Cho has been cast in the remake, and yesterday, the studio announced that Insidious star Lin Shay would also be joining the cast. Rounding things out this week, we have a couple big anniversaries in horror film history. Uh, It was 14 years ago this week that Zack Snyder released his uh, remake of Dawn of the Dead, and Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, the one without Jason, believe it or not, was released 33 years ago this week. So what exactly is an eco-horror film? Environmental anxieties or fears have been a recurrent theme in horror films for decades. Natural or eco-horror films emerged probably in the 1950s. 
Following World War II and the atom bomb, horror science fiction films like Godzilla, Them, and Tarantula exploited filmgoers' fears of atomic energy in the midst of what was then the emerging Cold War. Concerns about energy, overconsumption, and pollution increased in the 1960s and 1970s. Likewise, the 1980s and 1990s saw our concerns broaden to include acid rain and dwindling natural resources. Over the last 10 to 20 years, we've become increasingly worried about genetic modification of foods, climate change, and global pandemics. The eco-horror film serves as a morality tale. So this is a film where nature takes revenge against humanity for certain transgressions. These are films that are warnings to audiences about the consequences of environmental neglect. This would distinguish an eco-horror eco film from, say, something like Jaws. While Jaws is a movie about a giant shark eating people, it's really not a warning about any particular transgression that mankind has committed against the ocean. We're talking about films where at some point early on we see evidence or an example of someone doing something that damages nature and a specific aspect of nature, an animal, weather, that kind of rises up to attack and take revenge for that transgression. So let's move on and take a look at a few of the better examples starting from the 1970s and working our way up to some more recent examples. We'll start our trip through the eco-horror subgenre by going back to the 1970s and a little cult classic film called Squirm. The director of the film was a man named Jeff Lieberman. Now, slasher film horror fans may recognize Lieberman's name. He had directed the, uh, a little Don't Go in the Woods camper horror film called Just Before Dawn. Now, while the premise of Just Before Dawn is obviously a bit derivative of Friday the 13th, most horror fans agreed that Lieberman showed uh, a little bit of talent uh, with Just Before Dawn. It's a rather unique kind of hidden gem in the slasher film genre. Now, unfortunately, that talent didn't seem to find its way into the making of Squirm, which is an admittedly pretty terrible film. It's a movie about killer flesh-eating worms. After a powerful storm knocks down power lines sending electricity into the ground, it drives the worms mad, and they begin to burrow their way up to this small town in Georgia and take revenge on the local townsfolk. They even manage to make a screaming sound. Now, I'm not a biologist, but that somehow seems very unlikely to me. What's most surprising about Squirm is not just that it has the absolute most ridiculous premise, it's a surprisingly slow-making film. A horror film can be dumb, what it can't be is boring. And from death scene to death scene, Squirm takes, uh, takes its time getting to wherever it wants to go. The acting is terrible, it's broad, it'll make you ask the question, can you sound too southern? The script doesn't do them any favors. Really, the only notable thing about Squirm is the makeup effects. Again, horror fans will recognize the name of the makeup effects artist. It's a young Rick Baker doing some of his early work. If you're not familiar with who Rick Baker is, shame on you. This is the same individual who did the makeup effects for an American werewolf in London. It was his work on that film that actually prompted the Academy to create an award specifically for makeup effects. Now, Squirm can be a fun film if watched with uh, an open mind. Also, uh, as a bit of trivia, this is one of the last few films to get the Mystery Science 3000 theater treatment. So definitely worth checking out if just for that reason. I 
I realize this is only the first uh, episode of the podcast, so I'm asking you to go out on a limb here and trust me. Can a movie about a giant man-eating boar actually be good? The short answer is yes, yes it can. I'm not saying Razorback is a classic, but it's definitely much better than its synopsis would actually suggest. Uh, this little Australian film, or what critics would refer to as an example of Ozploitation, was released in 1984. The director was Russell Mulcahy, who was most famous for directing uh, the science fiction action film Highlander, starring Sean Connery and Christopher Lambert. Uh, prior to filming Razorback, uh, Macaulay had mostly directed music videos, and you can actually see some of that um, music video flair and some of the filmmaking in Razorback, uh, which is fairly impressive given its low budget. Really what uh, the director in this film does that's that's quite smart is, first, he, he takes a page out of Steven Spielberg's Jaws playbook. Razorback keeps its giant boar hidden in the shadows for most of the film. Really, you only get two types of camera shots. You either get extreme close-ups of what I'm assuming is uh, an animatronic boar head, which actually, for the most part, doesn't look too bad. Most of the other shots are long-distance and very quickly edited shots. So, for example, in one scene, uh, a hunter is looking at a row of boars all kind of lined up. Uh, through binoculars and as he pans you get this very quick glimpse of something that is just immensely looming all over all over all the other boars and it actually works fairly well as a good jump scene uh, Macaulay does a good job actually stringing together a couple of good uh, jumps and scares throughout the film even the opening which sounds a little ridiculous uh, the giant boar rampages through a house and runs off with a, a two-year-old toddler it may sound ridiculous but it's done quite well. The The sounds of the, the child crying off in the distance actually is, is a little bit disturbing. Uh, the other thing that uh, Razorback does quite well is it really avoids any attempt at trying to explain why this particular boar is, is so large. So there's no cutaways to someone trying to offer lazy expository dialogue. This, along with the fact that the film is fairly well paced, this is a, this is a brisk film. It doesn't give you a lot of time to really think about or, or question the concept. Uh, and the end result is a movie that works fairly well. It's only in the last few minutes during the climax where you really kind of can tell that uh, the creature effects are, are, are pretty clunky and it doesn't deter from enjoying the film. This is the kind of movie that if you enjoy kind of B-movie creature features, Razorback is, is definitely worth checking out. Alright, let's jump ahead to the 1990s for the next film on our list. Steven Spielberg made the best shark movie of all time when he released Jaws. Director Rennie Harlan, who's probably best known for his work on Stallone's Cliffhanger, has arguably made the second best shark film of all time with Deep Blue Sea. In Deep Blue Sea, scientists on a deep sea laboratory have genetically altered the brain density of mako sharks, all in a bid to find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, the treatments have made the sharks much larger than normal and super intelligent and hungry for revenge. The film features an impressive cast that includes, yes, Samuel L. Jackson. So before he was fighting motherfucking snakes on a motherfucking plane, Samuel L. Jackson was tussling with killer sharks. In addition, LL Cool J shows up as well as Thomas Jane of Punisher fame. Deep Blue Sea also features one of the best, best death scenes you will find in film history. I guarantee you, you will jump out of your seat and laugh out loud at the same time, given just how unexpected and over-the-top it is.
Black Sheep is a New Zealand horror comedy about sheep that have been genetically mutated into carnivorous monsters. In general, horror and intentional comedy are two difficult genres to blend. Jonathan King, who wrote and directed Black Sheep, however, proves to be more than up to the challenge. Released in 2006, King does an admirable job mixing both the eco-horror and zombie themes into one wickedly funny film with gross-out humor that may remind some viewers of Peter Jackson's early work. Perhaps the best scene in the film involves a massacre and an outdoor wedding. It's the film's irreverent blending of deadly seriousness with gleefully gory violence that makes it such a fun entry into the eco-horror genre. It's available right now for streaming on Netflix and definitely worth checking out. The last eco-horror film on the list is the 2010 remake of Joe Dante's Piranha. Like the better eco-horror films out there, Piranha 3D is a blending of both horror and comedy. This film is in on the joke, never taking itself too seriously. This is a little surprising given that this remake is directed by Alexandre Aja, best known for his work on the new French extremity film, High Tension. This time around the Piranha are not the results of military experiments, they're prehistoric fish inadvertently released by divers. Some viewers will take issue with the CGI Piranha effects. Personally, the Spring Break Beach Massacre scene more than makes up for it, and bonus points to Vin Rains for the most creative use of a boat propeller. Kudos also go out to Jerry O'Connell for almost stealing the show with his hilarious performance as a sleazy Girls Gone Wild style producer. That's my first podcast episode. Definitely a little rough around the edges, but I'll keep working on the content and production style. I do appreciate anyone out there who's taken the time to listen. And please check out the blog for all the written content. And if you're looking for any other eco-horror recommendations, the 1970s saw the release of several Nature Gone Wild films. From a giant octopus and tentacles to a vengeful killer whale and orca, even William Shatner got in on the act with Kingdom of Spiders. Thank you again, and until next week, stay in the shadows, my friends.